Hi there, this is Cindy Tonkin. I'm the Consultants Consultant. I work with data science teams, helping them work even smarter, faster and nicer. If you're brilliant and you want to be even better, this is the podcast for you. Ladies and gentlemen, today I have Laurie Silverman. Uh, more than 10 years ago, I read a book called Wake Me Up When the Data Is Over, and that was Laurie's book. And then recently we connected on LinkedIn, which is like one of those, oh, my God, my hero. So here today I get to talk to my hero, Laurie Silverman. Uh, welcome, Laurie. Thank you for coming. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, I'm curious, what sparked you to pick up that book so many years ago? Uh, I was uh, a client asked me to do some work on storytelling. So I read your book and I read a couple of other books, but yours stuck with me. I think yours is the one where it's like, no one ever says, oh my God, you should just see the PowerPoint I've just seen. But heaps of people go, you should hear the story I just heard. Um, so the importance of, of basically story makes things stick. And certainly in data today, in, in terms of the clients I'm working with, people are really, really now like, we have to know how to tell stories. Um, and, but, but Laurie, you're, you're, you've got an even bigger mission now. Do you want to talk to us about what your mission, your purpose is? Well, I, actually, I think there's a, two different parts to it. This past summer, I was doing a video for a colleague of mine, and he was asking me to reflect over my 40-plus year career. Mm -hmm. And I had my first epiphany, and that was that for the third time in my life, and I'll be 62 in a couple of months, I was doing something. I, I was bringing forward what I now would say is a subject that Google Trends doesn't even recognize. Mm -hmm. And because I've done this twice before in my career, I did it first in the total quality management arena. Yep. When I did a book with a colleague that looked at the future of the quality movement and my former husband wrote a fable for me called How the Q Lost Its Tail from Total Quality Management to Total Organizational Management. Um, and that's about circa like 1999. And then I did it again with the storytelling movement. The book that you mentioned, Wake yeah. Me Up When the Data is Over, was my second of three books that I've written in the field. But that book in particular was groundbreaking. Because no one prior to that time had looked at the application of story across multiple business functions. Mm. And to this day, that still is the largest study, the largest worldwide study of the application of story from an action research wow. perspective and really opened the doors to so many different people. I I kind of went a different route when after the book came out, but there are a lot of folks who say what you've said to me, you know, you're my hero, or I started a whole business as a result of that book. I'm like, well, good for you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> All the opportunities and, you create and then move on. <laughs> yes, exactly. Except this third time, I don't think I'm moving on. I uh -huh. think that this third time I'll actually see through to fruition what it is that I'm trying to do. So, it, it takes me back to when I was 30 years old. I was blessed to work for one of five companies affiliated with W. Edwards Deming in the quality arena. But what was unique about my company and my work was I was an organization development consultant managing other people who had my background and statisticians who had masters or were PhD prepared. Mm -hmm. And we were shifting the culture of organizations, which is what people are trying to do today when they talk about data culture. Yeah. And we 
figured out how to embed data into all kinds of decision making and actually shift entire organizations. And today people are really struggling with how to do it. And I kind of wave my hands and say, I'm here. Hello. <laughs> you know, but people look at me and, the, and, you know, the words have changed. The the tenor has changed a little bit, but I, I don't think what we're trying to do is any different. Uh-uh. You know, uh, yeah. Yes, exactly. And, and, you know, the challenge we have, though, today is we don't know really what to call this work. Over a year ago, some people started to call it data literacy, and those were a few of the tech companies who came together. And there are two different websites, one called the dataliteracyproject.org, and then there's the Data Literacy Foundation, where, again, these are tech-focused uh, websites that are encouraging people to become data literate. And I thought, well, maybe that's a name for what I'm doing, because I'd put together based on a chapter in my last book with Karen Dietz. The book is called Business Storytelling for Dummies. Mm-hmm. Um, I put together a method with her that I called collaborative data-informed decision-making. But now what we even know in the past, I'd say the past uh, several mm-hmm. months, is that there's a bigger area called decision intelligence under which that falls. Mm-hmm. So I have started to create what I'm calling data literacy 2.0, because I think that what people have forgotten is that it's not about the data. I I tell people data is meaningless on its own. Uh, What really matters are the decisions that need to be made in organizations. So to me, data literacy 2.0, as I'm defining it, is the enterprise core competence, not the individual core competence, which people still need to know. But yeah. I'm biased. I believe people need to know more statistics um, than they are getting. And, you know, because a lot yeah. of the data visualization software that's out there does not teach and is statistics. It's horrible. I mean, yeah. I, I see people going, oh, look at that point is going up on this chart. And I'm like, yeah, so what? what's the variability in that? In that? Do you have, can you calculate control limits? And they look at me like I have a screw <laughs> in my head, right? <laughs> So I'm data literacy 2.0 is that enterprise core competence and the culture that underlies collaborative data informed decision making because you know I'm I'm blessed Ooh. I'm blessed to be one of those few people who knows what done looks like <laughs> I, right I if someone yeah. says well what does a transformed organization how would it operate I can write that vision story mm-hmm. it's embedded in my brain and I've done it several times. However, you know, I don't know. People are very interesting when I talk to them about this around the world. And the the question really is, are we ready to take on this more enterprise piece? And I think that's the jury's still out on that. I will continue to raise my gauntlet because, you know, when you embark on these new and different things, which I call bleeding edge, I know from the past that it can take 5, 10, 15, 20 years, maybe yeah. longer to be, even become mainstream. You yeah. know, I, wouldn't even, I wouldn't even say business storytelling is mainstream, quite frankly. No. You know, I, you know, I think more people talk about it, but heck, you know, I mean, um, Karen, who I wrote with, I mean, she was on Wall Street in the 1970s working with C-suite leaders on business storytelling. And, and what year is it about to be? 2020? Yeah. I know. <laughs> Hilarious, <isn't it? laughs> So it's it's been a while. So so you you've you've mentioned some of your journey. Mm-hmm. Give us give us give me some background on where you've come from. So organizational development, obviously, obviously, but you've got an academic background. You've got some stats in there somewhere. Um, well, I learned 
I have two master's degrees. I have a master's in counseling psychology and an MBA. So obviously you have to have statistics when mm-hmm. you're in those. But at my the practical approach to statistics is something I learned from the statisticians that I worked with because the company that I was a part of, we did what people are doing today with analytics. We had three-week courses you had to go through to learn statistics. <laughs> and, and what I remember saying to the woman I worked with the most, and we worked together for a, almost, oh my gosh, over a decade, was you're all making this too hard for me, making it too hard. And what she said to me, well, the simple thing is we have data needs to have a voice and we need to get it to talk. I would change that today. Yeah. And I would say, it's not that data has a voice. (coughs) We have a voice. We as people have a voice Mm -hmm. and we have to give voice to the insights that are in data. Um, But uh, what I now observe is that we don't understand the difference between observations and insights. And that's a whole nother topic. But in terms of my, my own background, um, that those three years of consulting for uh, a company called PMI, which is where I got to work a lot with statisticians and supervise them really opened my eyes to the whole idea of how do we transform large organizations. I'm talking about tens of thousands of people. When that was finished, I added two more pieces to my background. I'm a strategist and a futurist. And so one thing that really has, if if I were to draw a Venn diagram today, Mm -hmm. one really huge piece is what I call strategic thinking. And from an academic perspective, I teach the only course, the only graduate course in the world on strategic thinking in an industrial and organizational psychology master's program. And I'll start that course up again in January. And then I, you know, add to that this whole area of decision intelligence, which requires you to understand decision making and how the brain works around decision making. And then the third piece that I spent a lot of years on is the business storytelling piece. And so to me, it's like there's a Venn diagram where all three of those have come together. And, And quite frankly, I don't know what to call it other than to say, well, if you search Google, at least data literacy will come up. (laughs) (laughs) I have to hang my head on something until I can figure out my own name for it. Uh, But it's the best that we have at this point in time. So I feel very blessed that in a very serendipitous sort of way, my career has led me to what I call my legacy work. I'm very clear that this is what I'm meant to do. Mm -hmm. For the rest of my working career, which will be until the day I cannot get on an airplane and the day I can't think and do, you know, videos and things like that. So it could be the next, you know, 20, 30 years. You're doing a LinkedIn, you're doing some LinkedIn learning stuff at the moment. How do people connect to that? Um, actually what I have is a LinkedIn live account and that's a bit different than LinkedIn learning. So, you know, I feel really (laughs) blessed again. I had a situation happen last July where I was to be on two LinkedIn live shows as a guest and Mm. neither of them happened. And the result of that was me saying, I wonder how people get a beta account (laughs) because it's still in beta mode. And I went to the website and I read through the form and talked to my colleagues and everybody's like, oh, you can't get it. I mean, I've been trying and filling out this form and I thought, what's the worst thing that could happen? And I put in that, you know, this fall, I was going to be starting a a 
speaking tour in Cape Town, South Africa, that would eventually wind its way into Canada and the U.S. and to London and then back into the U.S. And I named all the cities and I said, wouldn't it be fun to be able to do a LinkedIn live show from all of those different places? Uh. That was in July. The end of October, I was in Vancouver when I got the email that said, congratulations, you've been granted this show. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I've called it Level Up with Lori. Yeah. You know, Level Up. It's, I was looking today. The term Level Up is not even in the dictionary. It's a term that the um, uh, people, um, Webster's and others are watching. It's yeah. a trending phrase yes. right. that they may put into the dictionary. But, you know, that phrase comes out of the gaming industry. Course, but to me, yeah. it's so appropriate because people, you, you can't hit home runs in terms of learning. You have to just go up to that next level of mastery. And as you get to that next level of mastery, new challenges and new problems appear and you need to go off in different directions. So my shows are going to be quite diverse. The first one that we just did was on the collaborative uh, decision-making process that Karen and I developed. Mm-hmm. And she and I will do a follow-up show on, um, why, uh, I think we're calling it Why Your Data Story Sucks. <laughs> because yeah, there's, <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, there's, there's a huge misnomer in the industry because of the constraints of software that describing the data or using a data visualization means you have a story and that's not no. at all a narrative story. No. And so I feel like we need to kind of set the record straight and talk about how do you, you know, take insights and then craft strategically craft stories that get told uh, or shared with different stakeholders. Mm. And there are a variety of nuances um, yeah. to that. Uh, and then I'll do another show with a woman who um, is a market strategist, and we'll talk about why it's more important today to become an influencer rather than a thought leader. Oh, interesting. Oh, yeah, and that show's going to happen in January 2020 as well. We were having a conversation about this in August, and, you know, so many people in the data science industry or in, in any field related to data and analytics think that it's about building expertise when it's not. It's about building your visibility and your likability and your credibility. And, and so we're going to talk about that and what are her views and why has that changed? And I, and I told her, I said, you know, I, I, I smile because I've always said my academic work as an adjunct, I said, I want to be a rock star. Yeah. And you know, I do, I want to be a rock star. That's and the and that is, is, you already are. You just don't necessarily you. meet all the people <laughs> who know that you are. Um, exactly. Yeah, I, my second book was called uh, uh, Consulting Mastery, The Ability Myth, and it was exactly that. You don't need another course in how to do the thing that you're doing. You need a course in how to promote and influence people to pay attention to the thing that you're already doing. You know, once you get, not to say people shouldn't ever, you know, up, upgrade their skills, but it, it's like... If nobody knows you're doing it and no one's making a different decision because of the information that you have, then it's like a tree falling in a forest. Does anyone actually hear it? Who knows? So exactly. That's, so, so they just, is there a channel they people tune into on LinkedIn? Is there how do they get to know that you're doing this? 
That's a really good question. You know, LinkedIn <laughs> isn't that sophisticated. They make you buy a software yourself to use to be able to do the streaming. Yeah. I stream uh, simultaneous to LinkedIn and to YouTube. Okay. So the only way that people would know about the shows is if they ask to connect to me. Right. Once they do the connection, then what will happen is I put up uh, teaser announcements, just say, you know, hold this date and time. And only when the show goes live does LinkedIn send you a notification on your phone that says Lori's LinkedIn, you know, live show level up with Lori is now a go. And then oh, you go really? into your notifications, you click on it, and then you can comment and wow. talk with us. Okay. Yeah. Okay, well, I'll put some links so people can find you on LinkedIn much more easily um, because I'm sure that there will be some absolute value in that. And what, what else have you got planned? you got any other good ones for it? Yeah, I'm talking tomorrow, um, and I don't know what we're going to focus on, but I do some uh, course development work for Ubiquity University, which is really cool. They have no brick and mortar. So all of the folks work out of their homes all over the world, and they are creating mini and micro courses okay. for people to take. And I've developed one course for them called From Data to Insight to Action, and then I'm developing a second one on strategic thinking. It'll be 12 one-hour lessons. Yeah. I don't teach them. I just write them, and then someone else facilitates. Whenever there are enough people ready to take the course, that's when they hold the course. Right. And I. Uh, I'm not yet clear what Shelly and I are going to talk about. Shelly Elkhorn will be my guest, but I, I think it will be about the huge, huge disruption that is already starting to hit higher education. We're about to see a, a significant decline because of demographics and the number of people going to universities and colleges. And yeah. I don't think we're prepared for that. There are so many places that are already not financially healthy. And in the next five years or so, they're going to fall off a precipice if they're not prepared for how they can rethink and reshape what they're doing. And I, and I think that part of that for me is, you know, how do you get away from brick and mortar? But the second thing is something I did in 1995 with Duquesne University when I did their strategic planning. The dean of the business school who I was working with said to his faculty, Write for me a strategic plan with three breakthroughs where we do not have to be dependent on student tuition. Ooh. Now, and, and we did. We yeah. wrote it. And they made money hand over fist. Of course, the university was like, hey, wait a minute, we're over here. <laughs> oh, School of Business, what are you doing? Um, you know, uh, but it opened my eyes that I think that that may be something we need to start looking at. And then I want to hear Shelly talk about it and what she sees being on the horizon for people who really are those lifelong learners and how can they learn in new and different ways. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Very, very important. So clearly you're a lifelong learner. Is there something special you do? How do you, I mean, is it just that a client asks for something or you speak to someone that you get formation? Are there, are there things that you follow? Are there people's channels or um, branches of study? You, you know, it's, that's actually a really interesting question. I'm, I see gaps. They okay. just appear around me. I don't, my brain works a bit different, I think, than other people. I'm a, what, what my skills are in are synthesis, not mm -hmm. analysis. Right. And 
because I do scans, environmental scans for my clients going out to the year 2040, and we do foresight work, not forecasting work, yeah. I have that as a backdrop. So I already kind of know what the future is going to look like. I lead, you know, workshops on scenario planning. So yeah. I know what different sorts of trends or wild clouds or black swans or perking events are on the horizon. And then as I, I'm a scanner. Yeah. So I, and, I, and I tell people, I just, I have this whole bookcase. I'm about to take a picture of it. It's four um, shelves of books. And they're all the books I bought in 2019 that I haven't read. And <laughs> 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 I would like to have the chance to read. Yeah. I buy them because I, I know that I either want to talk to the authors or there's a chapter or two in them that yeah. really intrigues me. So once I start to scan those, I'm going to start to see more missing pieces. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, and, and I listen, I, I don't do the typical. I don't stay within my fields of expertise. I spend mm. a lot of time listening to what's, so I'll give you an example. I go to Coachella Music Festival. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of people are like, what would a woman who's in her 60s be doing at a music festival with 125,000 folks who are probably under the age of 25. Yeah. And you see a lot. You yeah. hear a lot of interesting conversations. You see what trends are happening in the music. You see the foods that are being put out. You have conversations with people from all over the world. I go by myself because mm -hmm. I don't want to be burdened by someone else saying, oh, we have to go to this tent or do this over here. I, I want to look at the art installations. I just want to be. So yeah, that, that's, that's your research, isn't it? It is. And, and because I live in Las Vegas and I am. You uh, see everything. <laughs> I see everything. I live on the strip yeah. and we are changing all the time here. Yeah. Where, you know, new restaurants, new artificial intelligence installations, new shows, new music. We have a new theater that's being built in the round that is only supposed to be like one of two in the world. Wow. We talk about, you know, new building materials. We are, it's, it's a very fascinating city because we're not bogged down by a lot of bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. And there are some reasons for that. But we do things really fast. Yeah. And, you know, other than being in New York, which is where I lived for a couple of years, or in London, which is where I'd love to live part-time, you know, where else do you go, right, to have that level of energy? Yeah. Um, and, and you have it. I mean, you have it in pockets as well, you know. Yeah. And, like, when I've been to Sydney, I see yeah. it, you know. And, and that's what informs me. It's how are people living their daily lives? Yeah. How are they responding to things? And then I take that back into my work. And I, I still then read all the technical pieces. And quite frankly, it, my students are wonderful, my graduate students. Uh, for example, with a strategic thinking class that I'll teach this January, and I'm just finishing up right now with a course, a graduate course in organization development. Mm -hmm. My students are challenged to give me articles that relate to the topics we're talking about that I haven't seen. Oh, that's mean. <laughs> and oh, no, they love it. They love it because yeah. they can bring in things from other classes and no one else allows them to do that. And that's that level of integration again. Yeah, exactly. Sounds like a, sounds like a theme. 
Um, let me see what also, oh, we could talk about the uh, how do you explain complex things to people, but I imagine the answer is going to be you do proper stories. <laughs> Well, yes, I do. But I'm also what most people don't realize about me is I have an instructional design background. So I'm very fortunate to have worked and led a training and development group in my, I'm going to say in my youth, I guess. And You've had at least five careers, surely. Right, exactly. But I did it in healthcare. So let's talk about technical Mm. jargon and making, you know, complex things simple. And that is the gift that I also have, I said, it's kind of like Einstein. You know, when he came up with E equals MC squared, it was simple and it was elegant. And that has been a principle that has guided my entire life. So, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I worked with, you know, 17 CEOs on uh, collaborative data informed decision making, but I didn't take them through the methodology where we started was what sort, what decisions are you making? Yeah. You know, write down on paper for me, what are the strategic decisions you need to make in the next 90 days? What are the ongoing operational decisions that you need to make? Because oftentimes in operations, it's the same decisions month in and month out. And then what are the ad hoc tactical decisions that you need to make? And that's where we started. You know, we didn't start with, we didn't start with data. In fact, we never really talked about the data. We talked about decision-making processes and knowing the decisions. And what they walked out with was, our dashboards are not designed with decision-making in mind, right? Yeah. So, you know, then that gets at, well, when are you going to toss them out? Or the one example I used of um, a weekly report that's over 60 pages long of <laughs> data. Oh, my. <laughs> I'm like, does, no one's going to read that. Well, they have a meeting about it every Ooh. week. Ooh. So what, what, you know, how are you going to find the golden nugget, that one insight in there that you need to run your business for the next seven days or the next month or year or whatever? It's going to be really hard. Yeah. So just having those realizations that they need to shift these um, scorecards yeah. and, and the requests for dashboards, they need to start thinking differently. And yeah. so do we, but, you know, that's not the way we're taught because we're taught to think about the data, not about the decision. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly in my experience, you're exactly right. When people sit down and go, what are the decisions I'm making? What information or insights do I need to make those decisions? That's a much, that's a much smarter place to start. And probably it's a better rapport based way to start because they know what decisions they need to make. They don't know what data they need. Correct. Um, and if they leave that to a data person to decide, it's possible they're going to be flooded with data um, or they get data that doesn't actually answer the question they want to answer. Well, what you get are interesting insights. You don't get meaningful insights. Right. And so what Tori story has taught us is how to, how to figure out what insights exist based on how people respond when we start to talk about what we're learning. And what we really want people to start saying is, oh, my gosh, I need to shift how we do ABC. But to go back to that question piece, the the questioning area, which is now gaining popularity in the literature, is missing a couple of things. One is the questions are still too broad and the questions are all focused on just getting knowledge. They're not focused on action. And. So when I sit down, I actually use in workshops that I teach, I have sample questions and I say these are written as knowledge questions, 
now reword them for me as action questions. And people have one heck of a challenging time doing that. Mm, mm. And when they are successful at making that transition, what they realize is that if you don't get to the action, people in a meeting will step and say, okay, we got the knowledge we needed. We're done. Yeah. But we're not. Now, now we're not. do something with it. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Now do something with it. And, and that's, I think, a huge shift as well mm, in mm. the field. So just very simple languaging sorts yeah. of things. And these are all things that people already know how to do. It's not like they're missing a brain cell around this. It's just that we've never asked, they've never thought of it in that way. So it's essentially it's a, it's a turning of their brain to what's important. Other than yes. Well, and it's also something more because if you're dealing with a C-suite leader and you get to the, you may or may not be able to get to the question because it could be one that's extremely sensitive that you are not allowed to know. So that's one issue that you have to deal with. A second issue you have to deal with is that they may already have had an insight. And I'm not talking intuition because intuition and insight are different. But they may already have had an insight that needs to be actioned. Mm -hmm. And then the person who's working with them says, oh, they are so biased. You know, they want me to collect data to confirm their insight. And my response is, don't collect the data. I just look at that C-suite leader and say, if you believe a thousand percent that that's the direction to go, then let's not waste any time. Because I'm going to tell you right now, it might take me quite a bit of time to get you what you need. I'd rather you take the time and start actioning it as long as you promise me one thing. If the action's wrong, you'll change it and you'll Mm -hmm. move in a different direction. And second, I'm happy to do concurrent, you know, inquiries for you on this question only if you're willing to look at what I put together. If you're not willing, I'm not going to bother. And I don't think we have those sorts of tough conversations. People are like, oh, I can't say that to a business leader. I'm like, here's the deal. If you can't, you won't have their respect. Yeah, absolutely. And which means you have to have developed the relationships already. Mm. And, th- and the other thing I do is if we have a, a, an actionable question and I say to a leader, just play a game with me. What do you think the three likely outcomes could be? And they list out one, two, three. I don't stop there. I then say, what actions would you take if it were one? What actions would you take if it were two? What actions would you take if it were three? And are you willing to take those actions? Because if you're not, then don't bother me either. Yeah, exactly. Let's, let's be, let's, we have to stop saying yes to everything. We have to start making a no sound like a yes in the sense that I I want to help you get what you need, which is in, as you're saying, an action, uh, a decision. Um, If you've already made the decision and you just want me to prove it, well, just go ahead. And if not, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a conversation that uh, I, I, I agree very few people are actually having. They're just saying, okay, great, I'll take your order, I'll do your thing. Um, and then, you know, in clo- behind closed doors, they're kind of going, oh, nobody wants to actually, nobody wants my information to blah, blah, blah. So, yeah. Right. And, and I know that there are people who say, well, if I give somebody what they're asking for, that will endear me to them. Mm-hmm. However, if nothing is done with it, how have you forwarded the agenda for the organization as a whole? So I think we, you know, it's not like I won't do what a business leader is asking me, but I push back. I, I have my rule of three. I push twice. Okay. And, 
if you still want me to do it that third time, I'll go ahead, but I'm going to tell you the consequences Ooh. of what I'm going to do. Um, and if you, and, and the reason I do that is because not everybody's going to be jumping off a cliff, right? So that's, that's why I push a couple times. But if I do think that you're going to fall off a cliff, then I'm a little bit more, okay, here's the deal. You're going to fall off a cliff. You know, if you take that action, I just want you to know that that's the decision you've made. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Not one I'm making for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, happy to help you when you figure that out, but just be aware. Fabulous. Um, so... Given that you're you're not a data scientist, but you work mm -hmm. around data scientists, yes. do you have particular skills or qualities you think are essential in a data scientist or a data analyst, people working in data insights? Well, I think it's the pieces that are uh, missing for from um, a more human perspective. One mm -hmm. is the ability to build strong, trusting relationships, because what we know, and I learned this from a business leader in Eastern Europe who said to me, you know, people talk about um, scrubbing data or cleaning data. He said, but I don't care how clean the data is. If I don't trust the person who's giving me what I'm asking for, I don't trust. Yeah. I don't trust exactly. anything. Yeah. So I think that that's the first thing is really spending time developing strong relationships or getting to know the confidants of people who are asking you for things so that you can get the inside scoop on what is going to be done with the work that you're doing. Yeah. And the second piece is that someone has to orchestrate the decision-making process. And what's, I speak a lot at business analysis conferences mm -hmm. and data scientists are leaving out BAs. And I think it's really Dumb. disquieting to me. And it doesn't have to be a BA. I have an organization development background. I could do the same work as well, or someone in quality could do the same work mm. as well. But I think someone needs to shepherd the steps in the collaborative data-informed decision-making process from the questions and raw data through to the observations, the insights, and then to the story of the insights to action. Mm -hmm. And right now it's all very, very fragmented. And people are saying a data scientist can do that. I've not seen any who are willing to do that whole process because yeah. they're steeped in the data. And then we've hired them to do that more deep dive. And so I think it's learning how to collaborate yeah. and knowing the right sorts of people to bring in and not excluding the organization. Because right now what's being done in my observation and um, I don't mean for this to be a, a loaded term, it's the only one I can think of, is fiefdoms are being created yeah. in the data community. And those fiefdoms do not recognize the mothership, the mother organization. Never forget that the mother organization holds the power. Yeah. And yeah. it can take you down just like it gave you the money to set you up, <laughs> at, right? If it doesn't see, yep. if it's not integrated into. I think the third skill set is learning organizational change management. And I'm not talking the small C, small M that project management talks about. I mean, mm -hmm. truly how to make transformation happen from an organizational perspective. Now, obviously this is my ideal list of things because you'll never find yeah. this on a no. laundry list of skills that a data scientist should have. But if you have those skills, you will become a rare bird. Yeah. Because you will know how to shift 
you know, teams and departments and business units and eventually whole organizations. And I have seen people singularly do that because they understand the sorts of seeding that needs to be done in terms of shifting of mindset to make behavior change happen. So those would be on my wish list. And Wow. Yeah. Fabulous. You know, yeah. And the story, the true narrative story piece. But again, all of this falls under the field of organization development. Yeah. And, you, you know, we don't we don't teach that all that frequently either. You don't find a workshop on that. You find only graduate degrees. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or certificates. Exactly. Right. Well, and it's also something you can't do in a two hour workshop. No, no, you can't. You it's can't. not a lunch and learn topic. <laughs> no. Well, it's a lunch and learn topic in that I can make you aware. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then you can start to make them some decisions about where do I want to go. But you don't, I mean, right now, even another piece that I have, uh, I don't see is, you know, Lorian Pratt, um, 10 years ago, started to talk about decision intelligence as a whole new academic arena. And she said it was the intersection of data science, management science, and the social sciences. And I would pull out the psychological sciences because I think we have so much brain research today that we need to focus on. But she just came out with a new book. Uh, called Link, and um, Cassie Kasgrav at Google. Um, I knew that this was going to become a bigger thing when Cassie changed her job title from chief data scientist to chief decision scientist. Interesting. And, yeah. you know, Instagram wrote an article back in January that it has groups of data scientists and groups of decision scientists. To me, if you do, that's that collaborative decision-making piece. If you do not know that, oh my gosh, that right there is going to, it's going to, it's going to be the next big wave. Now mm. might not happen for a few more years, but it's on a lot of people's radar screens. Yeah. You know, so again, being able to facilitate that, knowing how to run teams, knowing how to bring people together. Mm. And um, so, Laura, you travel an awful lot uh, yes. across the world. Uh, where are you traveling next? Where am I traveling next? Well, I, this is uh, in the U.S. This is the end of the college football season. Oh, okay. <laughs> I am attending three of the college bowl games because my team is in the Rose Bowl. Um, but I absolutely am a college football fanatic. And from a personal perspective, I'll be in Phoenix, Arizona, and in Pasadena, California for the fabulous games. Yeah, (laughs) and then from a work perspective, uh, my next um, overseas trip will be to Brussels. Oh, okay. uh, To speak um, at a conference, I'll do a workshop and a keynote um, on my methodology. So I'm real. I'm absolutely thrilled to be doing that. But um, I've, you know, I was like I said, I was in Cape Town, London. I been going to London once or twice a year now. And, 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 I, and I think that what I'm seeing is that people outside the U.S. and Canada are actually more receptive to uh-huh. some of the ideas you and I have chatted about. Than oh, really? Where I, yeah. And I'm not quite certain why that is, why we're being more myopic um, here. I mean, and we're opening up people's eyes, but not fast enough yeah. Um, yeah. to the possibilities of what can be. That's fabulous. Now, one of the questions I always ask people is what their favorite charity is. Do you have a favorite charity? Um, wherever I'm living, because I've moved a lot, it's, mm-hmm. uh, it would always be a food bank. Okay. Um, yeah. I, I, Practical, uh, it's real, it's action. Well, and I believe that unless you have a full belly, you don't have the ability to be curious and to learn. 
yeah. or to sleep and have everything else. And so to me, that's, it's one of the real basic human needs yeah, absolutely. that um, is in the forefront. Um, and then also for me is um, mental illness um, because we're seeing more of it in the workplace and we don't know how to address it. I see it with my graduate students. Um, it's it's front and center, and we've got to figure out how to make uh, life easier and what are the accommodations mm. that we're going to be making and how do we educate people that, you know, these are, it's not bad people, it's not bad illnesses. Um, you know, I mean, I, like I said, I have a counseling psychology background, so I have a, yeah. you know, a real place in my heart for that as well. Yeah, absolutely. So is there anything, Laura, you want to say before we finish up? I know I, I could I could speak to you for three days, but I imagine you've got other things to do on this sunny afternoon in on in uh, in December. Um, any 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 final words you wanna put out there? Well, I think for your audience is to start looking at some of these other fields of study, you know, the management mm -hmm. sciences, the social sciences, especially brain research. Yeah. Um, I'll kind of leave you with a little bit of a teaser. You know, the brain hates data and I don't care what form you give it to the brain, even as a data visualization, or even if you're Hans Rosling, who's describing data in his TEDx talk, that's still data. And the brain ha is, has a very difficult time comprehending it. It's, it, takes it too much time and it's too much work. We've mm -hmm. got to start incorporating brain research into our work. And, and that's where story comes in, mm -hmm. narrative human story. So um, to me, that's a, that's a really big challenge because a lot of people will say to me, well, um, can't I reserve the right to that we agree to disagree? And I'm like, you want to disagree with brain research, really? <laughs> <laughs> You know, and, and in the academic journals that I read, we, we call these um, things zombie ideas. Yeah. They're like zombies. You can try yeah. 10 different ways to kill them and they just keep they resurrecting themselves. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so I think that for anyone in this field, start to learn how the brain operates when it comes to data and to decision making. And it will profoundly shift how you do your work. Yeah. Is there any particular work person's book or website that you would recommend around that? Well, um, I'm going to say the, uh, the next LinkedIn live show that I'm going to do with Karen Dietz. Definitely. <laughs> because okay. we are, we, we made a decision a couple days ago that we would talk about brain research. So we're going to bring together a lot of it and we will, provide people with references. Yeah. But the thing is, is that it's so scattered. It's not in one place and it's not coming out of yes. one institution. So you kind right. of have to cobble it all together. And that's what we hope to do for people. And then people can do their own and independent research from there. That's certainly one of your strengths that you, that you do, as you've described already, you're out there in a, on so many different places that you bring back stuff and knit it into a, a thing. Now your LinkedIn live, uh, do they keep it on LinkedIn after it's live? Like can people watch replays? You know, that's a really interesting question. Um, that's why I'm also streaming it to YouTube because yeah. it'll always be there under my channel. So if people sign up for the channel, they'll see the, um, that uh, show. The LinkedIn 
I don't know where they go on LinkedIn. <laughs> My brain, like, yeah, well, that's okay. I'll get your YouTube channel. I'll link to the YouTube channel. So well, what just I, in what case I did by was, the time, you know, people listen to these things. I know myself, I've just been listening to some podcasts that are like four years old. Uh, and yeah. if you listen to a four-year-old podcast, where can you listen to this fabulous information? Well, you can go to the YouTube channel where Laurie's stuff will all be there. Fabulous. Yes. So I keep the links as well for myself on LinkedIn and on my own personal page. Yeah. What I'm doing is I'm linking to the YouTube. Yeah. Great. So that yeah. way, that's where people can find most of my media, the webinars yeah. I've been doing, um, the uh, videos, po- lots of podcasts like we're doing today where they can hear other different perspectives and different angles of what we've been talking about. This is, I'm just so excited having met you. Thank you so much, my hero, uh, Larissa thank Woman. Um, thank you so much. It's been, I, I would love to talk to you again in, in another few months. Let's do it again if we can. Um, and we'll talk about something else because you'll have moved on because you never step in the same river twice. And uh, clearly you've got so much, uh, like, amazing knowledge of so many different fields that I just, I feel really privilege for having spoken to you for this long. Well, you're very, very kind. And I would love to uh, join you again in a few months to say what's new on the radar screen. Yeah, that would be so good. Excellent. Let's do that. This is Cindy Tonkin. I'm the consultant's consultant, and you've been listening to Smarter Data People. This is part of what I do to understand how it is that data scientists can be more effective in the workplace, smarter, faster and nicer. And if you have a team and you're finding them harder to manage than they could be, if you're constantly trying to squeeze more out of your budget and out of their time, and if you've got stakeholders or they've got stakeholders who are less than happy sometimes, maybe a lot more than sometimes, it can be really annoying and it can make you feel incompetent. I can help you help them get to the important problems faster, target the wasted time and save you time and money, and ultimately delight stakeholders so that you can feel competent again. It's such a good feeling. Talk to me.